Real quick before we get started, we are doing a live taping of this podcast on June 28th, that's next week in New York City. I'll be talking about artificial intelligence, augmented reality, and consciousness with friend of the pod, Stephen Johnson, who's working at Google to build a new suite of AI tools, David Chalmers, the philosopher who came up with the hard problem of consciousness, and John Borthwick, the legendary venture capitalist and CEO of Betaworks. You can get more information and buy tickets at betaworks.com events. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, part two of my conversation with Peter Atia about the science and art of longevity. Last week on the show, we shared the first half of a two-hour conversation I had recently with Dr. Peter Atia, the Stanford-trained physician who's written a new book, a New York Times number one bestseller called Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I encourage you to pause this one and go check it out. It's called Outlive Part One. Peter and I spoke about why he thinks modern medicine, as it's typically practiced, is not very effective at helping people live longer and better. And then we did a deep dive on exercise. Peter presents a compelling argument that the single best thing you can do for your overall health is work out a lot, both strength training and cardio. He has persuaded me, I'm already in the last couple of weeks taking it up a notch, although I have a lot more work to do. Today, in part two of our conversation, we get into the other key pillars of health, sleep, nutrition, and emotional well-being. I started by asking Peter about the mood-boosting, mind-clearing, life-extending power of a good night's sleep. It feels like a relatively easy win. I guess we don't want to use the term easy because for many of us, sleep is a real issue. But the benefits that I felt in my own life when I decided to just allocate more time to the sleeping process and get a little bit disciplined about trying to get good sleep, it just feels good, right? And and I think it's it's an easy way to easy your way perhaps to feel a lot better and and get some some real benefits. Is that would you agree with that? I do. I echo your sentiments completely, which is nothing's easy, but yeah. this one has the shortest gap between decision and execution. So for each of these things, whether it be nutrition, emotional health, exercise, sleep, the first and most important step is the committed step. You have to decide you want to do this. None of this happens by accident. Yeah. You're, you're not just going to, oh, look, oh my God, accidentally, like my VO2 max is so high. No, no, no. You got to decide, like, I want a high VO2 max. I want to be strong. I want to be, et cetera. When it comes to fully embracing the decision to optimize your sleep, which is the hardest step. Once you do that, the path to doing it is by far the easiest of any intervention we have. Yes, right. But that's a big first step. 
and the dividends are, I mean, it profoundly affects mood, cognitive function, glucose removal, Absolutely. memory formation, libido, empathy. Yeah, right? it's just, it's just such a, it's just, it's, it's really wonderful. Um, it's definitely the easiest thing that we work on in the practice. And it doesn't mean that it's easy and it doesn't mean that there aren't patients who we don't send for CBTI, so cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which, you know, some people who, after we pull all the levers, fix all of the underlying, um, you know, hygiene issues, rule out medical issues such as sleep apnea, they're still struggling with insomnia. Yeah. I mean, there's some really important and wonderful behavioral tools that you can, that you can do, but I've never seen a, I've never, I've yet to see a patient who doesn't resolve with CBTI when we have to go down that rabbit hole. But you have to get to this point where you're saying, this is so important that I'm willing to do it, which means I'm willing to make eight hours of my day for this thing. And you know that's about what it yep. takes to get seven and a half hours, 7.15 to seven and a half hours of sleep. You gotta be able to devote eight to eight and a half hours to this activity. I'm gonna be consistent when I go to bed and when I wake up, including weekends. The room is gonna be dark, it's gonna be cold, and I'm not gonna have electronics in the room. You gotta get the phone out of the room. Just yep. no phone in the room. And you you gotta set the mood for sleep by not doing stimulating things beforehand. And the most notable of these for virtually every human being is email and social media. So, you know, people say, oh, Peter, does that mean you can't watch TV before bed? No, not at all. I mean, a lot of times you're watching TV, it's kind of like more relaxing, enjoyable. You know, it probably isn't the optimal thing to do, but no one's saying you can't just, you know, sit there and, and watch some TV before bed, but you want to make sure you don't fall asleep on the couch if you're doing it too. So again, there's, there's lots of ways to work through it. And, and then there are a lot of supplements that I think really help and, and are, are great for optimization that aren't, you know, habit forming and don't come with a lot of the negative health consequences of traditional sleep medications such as Ambien and Lunesta. Interesting. So what, what supplements do you like? What I personally use is I, I use three grams of glycine, 600 milligrams of ashwagandha, magnesium L3 and 8. And I also use, depending on like, for example, like I'm traveling to Europe this summer for a week to do some book stuff. And I'm all about kind of maximum efficiency when I travel. So if I'm going somewhere for six days, even if it's a seven or eight hour time zone difference, I don't want to waste any time getting over jet lag. So in a situation like that, I've, I've got a few big guns that I really help. Like I will use a high dose melatonin, say three three milligrams. I'll use four to 600 milligrams of phosphatidylserine. These are things that you're using to force yourself to sleep when you don't want to yeah, sleep. Yeah. Um, because sleep is really just a, it's just a balancing act between three things, melatonin, adenosine, and cortisol. And we have ways to kind of manipulate all of those. Yeah, I've used melatonin, magnesium tea. I don't know uh, if that makes a difference. And sometimes CBD, mm -hmm. I found to be helpful. And and when you say get the room dark, I mean, you, you talk about actually like putting tape on you no, know, little I lights mean, I, on I, electronics or how, how far do you yeah, go? Yeah, so it depends. Like back when I sort of partially lived in New York, you know, it was more of a problem, right? Because I had to get like really special blackout blinds and stuff. Otherwise it was just like light all the time. You know, where we are now in Austin, Texas, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. Like we don't have blinds on our windows and that's okay. There's a little bit of, you know, light that comes in, but you'd be amazed at how bright people's rooms are sometimes when they're, when they're, yeah. when they're sleeping. I do have a clock beside my bed, but it's on a very low setting and it's kind of faced away. Like I can't really see it, but I do, you know, if I get up at some point, I kind of like to know what time it is. So 
Yeah, I'm not fanatical about this. Like I, I don't wear an eye mask unless I'm on an airplane or in a hotel. And I can't like sometimes in a hotel, I just can't get it dark enough. Um, I'll, I'll use an eye mask. Yeah. I got an aura ring about a year ago and that has helped me quite a bit, largely because I think the most profound impact was just seeing how much my heart rate was elevated by drinking alcohol mm. and also late dinners and consistency of bedtime was something I hadn't been tuned into. And, and the, the adjustment that I made is I used to allocate eight hours for the sleeping process. I now allocate nine because I realize that I'm often 15 minutes late. Mm -hmm. It takes me 15 minutes to actually fall asleep. And what I've concluded is if I want to get eight hours of sleep a night, I need to allocate nine. And how do you feel about, about sleep trackers for your patients? Um, I think they're valuable, but also you have to be a little careful that you don't get too neurotic about them. So we we are pretty liberal with sleep tracker holidays when that becomes a bit of a problem. So they're good in that they help us see what's going on. So we're, you know, we have a portal that allows us to see our patients' data. But I think the most powerful benefit is the one you just described, actually. It's a bit of a compliance tool and it's a bit of a reminder. Uh, like I woke up today and my heart rate was 10 beats per minute higher. My HRV was 50% lower, uh, because, you know, I had two glasses of wine last night and, uh, which I don't regret by the way, you know, one of my best friends from high school was over. I haven't seen him in 10 years. We had an awesome night, but I got to say, I got a good little reminder. Hey, that's what happens when you do that. And would I do it again? Of course I would. Would I do that every night? Absolutely not. Yeah. So this, so, so of all the data, um, I, I, I joke with friends that I have a file called scientific studies that support the life I want to live anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think we all have some degree of confirmation bias when we're digesting kind of health information. And for me, 10 to 15 years ago, there was a broad perception. I remember reading an article in the New York Times that, you know, one to two drinks a night for someone of my body weight decreased, you know, heart disease risk by 33%. I, I had it framed and on the wall. <laughs> I mean, not not literally, right, but right. in my Might mind. Well, it was then. like, I was like, hallelujah. This is like, you know, and, uh, you know, so I, I, was, I was in a rhythm of two glasses of red wine every night. And then I just, you know, kept getting this more and more data was coming in, more and more studies just showing that really any consumption of alcohol had negative negative impacts. And, uh, and so I have been uh, very diligent in looking for any kind of countervailing evidence <laughs> because honestly, I love a glass of wine or bourbon. And the only thing I like better than one glass of wine is two glasses of wine. And so I, I have cut back meaningfully. I've, I've, I've now cut back to like only when friends are over because we know that that's critical to health, right? We, that human connection is critical. Um, and so I guess my rationalization in my mind is, here are my two justifications and you can poke holes in them. The first is that yes, alcohol is a toxin, but so is excessive stress. Mm -hmm. Cortisol in the bloodstream is, you know, is like Drano. And if you have... And arguably, it's the lesser toxin if it really meaningfully decreases your stress throughout your week is, is my rationalization number one. Rationalization number two is we know there are massive health benefits to really connecting deeply with other humans. And we had a guy named Edward Slingerland on the, sh on the show who wrote a wonderful book called Drunk about the co-evolution of humans and, and alcohol. Fascinating if you haven't read mm. it. And he cited some a number of studies showing you know, very definitively something that most people wouldn't be surprised by, which is you take a random sampling of people, 
Some think they're drinking alcohol, but they're not. Some think they're not drinking alcohol, but they are. Tested every which way. You get five strangers in a room, and there is way more human connection, more eye contact, more laughter, more trust when people, whether they realize it or not, have consumed alcohol. So, so I think it, it is effective in helping hu humans connect, and we know that's good for health. So what do you think? <laughs> I think it would be hard-pressed to disagree with anything that you've said. It comes back down to this discussion of nuance again. And, and for, for everyone, there's going to be a slightly different answer to this question. There are probably, at least in the case of red wine, there are probably also some phytochemical benefits as well. There's probably some antioxidant properties of red wine that in and of itself, from just from a nutrient standpoint, are probably beneficial. Everything you've said about the pro-social side of it for many people is true. But of course, for some people, that's not true. Let's not forget that there are many people for whom alcohol is a bad thing. So it's an antisocial yes, thing, of course, and there's a yeah. negative consequence of that both to others and to themselves. So I don't want to I don't want to lose sight of that. What's unambiguous is that ethanol per se is a toxin, a carcinogen, and a harmful molecule. I just want to make sure everybody understands. There's nothing about ethanol that is uh, at any dose beneficial. It's not a linear response to toxicity. It's probably more exponential. So, meaning at low doses, it's probably, you know, if you, the difference between one, uh, you know, between zero tequilas and one tequila is not gonna be huge, but one to two is gonna be more, and two to three is gonna be even more than that. And then with, with red wine, you have this other issue where there may, in fact, be some chemical benefits of the other constituents of the, of the alcohol i.e. distinct from the ethanol. And then of course, there's everything that you said, right, about the benefits of what it does and, and how that's probably what the epidemiology is capturing, right? The epidemiology right. is probably mostly capturing the social connection piece of it. So then how do you bring this back and reconcile this, which is, well, we just figured something out thanks to our sleep trackers, right? Which is, yeah, if I have two glasses of wine at 6 p.m., and go to bed at 10 p.m., I sleep pretty well. If I yep. have two glasses of wine at 9 p.m. and go to bed at 11 p.m., I sleep really poorly. Well, I mean, there's a pretty, pretty obvious implication here, which yes. is- right, right, right. You can be mindful about how you use this thing to your advantage and sort of shield yourself from some of the harm of it. So to me, that's, that's, that's like what I would call sort of the nuanced approach to that. Yeah. This is expert middle-aged partying, which is start early, right? This, That's exactly <laughs> this right. This is one of, one of the things that we learn. And actually, like an open question is how much of the negative impacts of alcohol on our health is due to uh, negative impact on sleep, right? Because we know that yeah. we know that negative impact on sleep has profound neg negative impacts, right? So I, I don't know how, when we look at those studies, how we can tease those two things apart. I don't think there is a way retrospectively. I've talked about this with some folks who are kind of interested in this question as I am. And I think the only thing we've ever been able to come up with is there, you would have to study this question prospectively to really tease apart these different things. I don't know who would fund such a study, but it's, there's no question in my mind, we could, we could really make, you know, if you, if you were, if, if, if an entity was willing to put up the money to do a five-year study, we could really get some insights here.
I know you sometimes find funding to accelerate studies of, of, of collective interest. I think there are enough people who enjoy a couple glasses of red wine that, <laughs> that there, might be, there might be appetite to fund that. The, I, I was interested, I, I listened to your conversation with Dr. Andrew Huberman, and, and I was interested in, in his, he, you know, he made the comment that he doesn't, he's never enjoyed drinking. And clearly when he encounters a data point that drinking is just categorically bad, he just fully accepts it and, and integrates it into it. Whereas, since you do enjoy a glass or two of red wine, uh, you know you're you're. Uh, I mean, it, it seems to me that in a world within which we never have total clarity on the facts, and we're constantly building a, a point of view and, and a belief system that that a little bit of confirmation bias is not a, is perfectly natural. Yeah. Right. That we're right. No, and it's really funny. Like I didn't drink in high school. I can count the number of times I drank, you know, in college, med school a little bit more, but even then it was just dumb drinking, right? It was like, you know, cheap beer at the bowling alley kind of crap, but I've never really like it. It's, it's, it's only in the last 10 years that I've really come to enjoy alcohol for, for the sake of like what I'm drinking, like really kind of getting into tequila, really getting into mezcal, yeah, really yeah. getting into you know, a handful of mixed drinks that my wife claims I make better than any bar she's ever been to. Uh, you know, obviously certain types of wine, a couple of, you know, there's a couple of beers I really like. So you're right. I'm always looking for data to, to make me feel better about that. But, but yeah. truthfully, I've, you know, I haven't come up with a lot. I, I love your comment though, that if you, if you have a sip of a, a glass of wine or something, it doesn't taste good. You'll spit it out. I, I did it. Because, I did it two nights right? ago or yeah. three, three nights ago. Yeah. We opened a bottle that we had never tried before. So it was just like, hey, this kind of came recommended, opened it. And it wasn't like it was bad, but I drank it and I was like, I don't love this. Like, yeah. I know we just spent yeah. 40 bucks on this bottle, but it kind of sucks. Like, let's pitch it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've, I've, I've found myself doing that with a croissant <laughs> that, you know, I figure like, it's really not something I should be eating, but if it's just, totally transcendent and and you know i break out in goosebumps from the joy I, i'll give myself permission for certain kinds of experiences but sometimes i'll you bite into something and it's just stale and not so good and i think why am i chewing on this this is this is coming out um, yeah that's my approach to gelato in uh in in italy it's like it's so good i'm gonna have it twice a day every day for two weeks and deal with the consequences when i get home when we come back Peter explains why he hates being asked about nutrition at dinner parties and shares the simple diet advice he thinks you should actually follow. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. John Lennon said, count your age by friends, not years. I've always liked this quote, and I've tried to apply it always be building new friendships, expanding communities. 
And I've tried to apply the same approach to the process of learning, always be learning, ingesting new ideas, testing my assumptions. But where can you find a flow of the best new ideas vetted by experts? There is so much noise out there. I'm so glad you asked. This is why we started the Next Big Idea Club. We've partnered with hundreds of the world's leading nonfiction authors to create audio summaries of their books. We call these summaries Book Bites, and our app features a new one every single day. You can listen to a Book Bite in 12 minutes or read it in five. There's no other place on the planet where you can listen to book summaries created by authors themselves. And that's not all we have waiting for you when you download the Next Big Idea app. We also have video and audio masterclasses, ad-free versions of this podcast, new original audiobooks, and tons of other member benefits. So what are you waiting for? Open your app store, search for the next big idea. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the next big idea app right now. You say, Peter, that you you hate being asked at dinner parties about diet. Why is that? I also hate being asked about it on podcasts, by the way. No, um, <laughs> I just, I just hate the topic. I hate everything about yeah. it. And that's, that's a, a sort of a, a mean thing to say. The truth of it is there's a lot of times people come up to me and ask me things at parties and there's just a genuine confusion and curiosity and, and, and I can understand that. Um, but I, what I, what I think I rail against is just, again, the, the sort of and social media has made this unbearable, but it's just the religious zeal with which people try to tell you that their diet is the one true diet. Again, the evidence is just overwhelming that that is not the case. Nutrition matters in terms of energy balance. Nutrition matters as far as micronutrients. Nutrition matters as far as anabolic building blocks, i.e. protein. Nutrition matters you know, in terms of avoidance of disease causing agents, like there are some really obvious things about nutrition that matters. Truthfully, the only thing that's not in the book that, you know, cause I, as much as I hate to talk about nutrition, it, it does have two enormous chapters in the book. So I have a lot to yeah. say about it, even though it's not yeah. a topic I enjoy. The only thing I didn't include in that just because time and space became unyielding was I, I do have a very growing interest in soil and uh, and mm. plant quality and, and, and sort of, yeah. you know, the cycle of life, right? So what's the carbon cycle, right? So you're, if your soil sucks, which unfortunately most of the soil in the US now officially sucks, then your plants kind of suck. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. nutrient density of the plant sucks. If the nutrient density of the plant sucks, the animal nutrient density that eats it sucks. So that doesn't really matter that much if you're going to be a vegetarian or an omnivore, you're, you're just not getting optimal quality. And this is actually the thing I'm finding myself most interested in now is understanding this world of regenerative agriculture and understanding how soil quality can have such a profound impact. And, you know, we have a garden here at our house and I just can't get over the difference in how and unfortunately, it's not big enough that we can sustain ourselves fully on it. So we're still kind of going yeah, back and yeah. forth between the best organic stuff we could buy versus our stuff. And it's night and day different. Like the tomatoes that, you know, my son grows in our garden mm. are 
incredible. If I had a second life, I, I'd, I'd love to have a regenerative, you know, ag farm where everything from soil to animal is, 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 is purely grown in this way. And, um, you know, so to me, that's the most interesting topic in nutrition right now, but at the level of kind of our patients, you know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to make sure people are in energy balance. So if you're overnourished, we got to make you less nourished. That's just a polite way of saying you have too much fat in your body. And a lot of it is probably in the subcutaneous space, which isn't problematic other than the obvious aesthetic component that people care about. But it's when it escapes that subcutaneous area and it starts to, you know, coalesce around organs as visceral fat within the muscle as intramuscular fat around the pancreas, the heart, all these other places, that really metabolically toxic fat is a very high priority for us to get rid of. And so we juxtapose that question with, are you under muscled or adequately muscled? And most people show up slightly overnourished and under muscled. So this is the big problem. That's the majority of people that are listening to us right now. You're overnourished, but you're under muscled. So you have to reduce intake while increasing protein intake and increasing strength training. That's the solution to that problem. More strength training, more protein, less calories. Yeah. And it's hard. And I imagine, as you say, it's a, it, there's a lot of tribal passion around diets and nutrition. You talk a lot in the book about fats and how the body processes them and, and, and cholesterol. And uh, a lot of it was, was new information for me. And this notion that, you know, for most all people listening, I imagine the word cholesterol has a negative connotation. There's obviously people talk about good and bad, which are distinctions you don't love. But I, I think I, I had not understood that cholesterol is critical to the functioning of a healthy body, right? I believe it comprises our cell membranes. So, you know, fats are absolutely critical to our health. It's more complicated than we think. And you can have extra subcutaneous fat, as you were saying, effectively belly fat or wherever it resides and still be perfectly healthy as long as that fat has not overflowed into your muscles, your bloodstream, your kidneys, right? Uh, That's right. You want to speak more to that? No, you did a great job explaining it. Um, you know, the greatest evolutionary leapfrog we took probably came in one way or another in response to our ability to store excess energy. So there's nobody that would dispute what distinguishes us from every other species on this planet is our brain. We're not bigger. We're not stronger. We're not faster. You can always find another species on this planet that is better than us at any domain you can think of except one. And so we pay a price to have this brain is one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is we paid the price by being able to store energy in order to have this brain. So your brain is a fraction of your body weight, and yet it's responsible for 20 to 25% of your metabolic need. And that would be incompatible with our evolution had we not figured out how to store energy. So this capacity to put excess carbohydrate and excess fat into subcutaneous fat stores is the thing that made us what we are. And in a relatively food scarce environment, it poses zero problems. It only has posed a problem in a relatively recent time frame. I mean, it's like 0.0001% of our genetic past that this has become problematic because we're now in such a food dense environment. You know, we have so much food availability. 
And when you factor in other factors that are working against us, so now we have unnatural light, which makes sleep much more difficult. We have yep. modernity that has rendered activity optional. So everything is working against us, chronic stress versus just acute stress. We used to be mostly about acute stress. Now we are mostly about chronic stress. So you have chronic stress, inactivity, poor sleep, abundant food. It's a catastrophe. So this idea that we can store adequate amounts of energy is out the window. Most of us are storing far more energy than we need. And at some point it escapes the, as I describe it in the book, we, it escapes the bathtub that we are, you know, that we have to house water in and the water starts flowing out of the bathtub. And as long as the water's in the bathtub, everything's fine. Water starts leaving the bathtub, you're hosed, right? That's when it leaks into the ducts and screws up the air conditioning and, you know, God knows where it ends up in the floors and stuff like that. So once that fat gets into those other places, that's where metabolic disease really escalates. I mean, that's what's happening in someone with type two diabetes. And that's why there's a very strong though not complete correlation between obesity and metabolic disease. So you could have someone who had the right genetic predisposition and exercised quite a bit, who had a beer gut and yet was pretty healthy, like a, a sumo wrestler that trained quite a bit and, and, and had the right predisposition. Yeah, there are, there are people, uh, and, and by the way, it's about, I mean, there's a figure in the book, and I, so I can't remember the exact numbers, but, but you know, roughly... I think it's maybe 25% of people who are obese are metabolically healthy and their health outcomes are no different than uh, a non-obese person. Similarly, about, I, I can't remember the numbers again, I think it's maybe it's 10% of people who are non-obese, and in fact, not just non-obese, but of normal BMI are metabolically unhealthy. Their health outcomes paradoxically are slightly worse than the obese, metabolically unhealthy individual. These are people that have really small bathtubs. In other words, like mm -hmm. they don't they don't have much capacity to store excess energy, so they very quickly start to vault it into these unwanted places. And I, I love this detail that that when we eat fats, that typically our bodies produce cholesterol, produce fats, but that most of of the fats that we eat are shat out or, or not cholesterol, uh, not fat. Cholesterol, okay, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Most of the cholesterol that we eat, because it is attached to another chemical group called an ester link, it's just too big to fit in the transporter in the gut that brings it into the cell. So, you know, the cholesterol that's in eggs or shellfish or things like that, it's just leaving, yeah, it's leaving your body without ever entering it. So virtually all of the cholesterol in our body is there because our cells have made it. So, so the basic principles, though, of nutrition that are non-controversial, I imagine, are avoid drinking sugar water, right? Obviously, like, you know, sodas, but even fruit juice, Gatorade, sports drinks, like sugar water is kind of all over the place. Processed foods are generally a bad idea. Would you agree with that? What, what, what do you think are the, are the non-controversial statements we can make? I don't want to be like too much of a stickler, but you know, the, even yeah. the term processed food is a bit complicated, right? Because, yeah. you know, processing food is what allows us to live in the way that we live, right? Like uh, it would be very difficult for, for us to live if we could only subside on completely unprocessed food because, you know, we're not all growing our own food. So it's true that if you're eating something processed, the probability that it's bad is probably higher than the probability that it's good. 
look, there were some processed things that I eat that I think are really healthy. So you have to sort of look at everything in a, in a case by case basis. So if we're looking for just broad contours, it's it's all the common sense things for sure. You know, it's shopping on the outside of the grocery store, not the inside. It's, you know, always doing the grandma test. Like, did my grandma eat this? If no, I probably shouldn't be eating this. But again, that's not a universal truth, right? You know, your grandma couldn't have had a whey protein shake, but there's really high quality whey protein out there that is a great way to get additional protein if you can't get it through all of your meals. So long-winded way of saying one has to be painting and not painting by numbers when it comes to nutrition, I think. So fasting, I've been in the intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, you know, eating within an eight-hour window plan for four years now. You are, um, are kind of, uh, it seems like uncertain that that is the right path. Well, I just think it it's a it's one of the three strategies we have for energy restriction. So if we go back to the framework, are you overnourished or undernourished? If you're in the overnourished camp, regardless of what's going on in the undermuscled or overmuscled or adequately muscled, you're going to be reducing intake. You have three strategies to do that. Time restriction is one of them. Time restriction has the advantage of being conceptually and operationally the easiest one to implement. Yeah. It is a mindless hack. Okay. You literally just need a clock. That's it. And once you do it, it's so easy. So that's the good news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is it's very difficult with a very tight window of time restricted feeding to get the appropriate amount of protein consumed and spread out accordingly over the over the course of the day. The second big limitation of time-restricted feeding, which is, by the way, I'm not suggesting that you're doing this, but just this is a lot of yep. people do this, sure. is they tend to yep. overcompensate when they are eating by just eating a bunch of crap. Um, yeah. It, it, look, you see the same thing in everything. You, see, you know, the person who says, I'm going keto or I'm going vegan, therefore I'm holy and anointed, and they just eat the crap version of keto and vegan, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah, congratulations, you've done nothing. So- those are the two biggest issues we have to be mindful of when people do time-restricted feeding. And there are ways around both of these things. But again, you just have to be mindful and you have to be very deliberate about it. Yeah. For, for me, it, as you say, it was much easier than and much more appealing than other ways of restricting my diet. It caused me to drop another 10 pounds to get closer to my college weight. I feel much more alert. I, feel, I used to feel kind of a little sleepy after lunch. Generally, I, I like the the cognitive feeling of it, uh, and it also lowered my LDL into a healthy range. Um, so it, it seems to have worked for me. However, I am concerned, having read your book, that I'm not eating enough protein. And this is one of the most surprising uh, sections of your nutrition chapters, is you say the standard recommendations for protein are a joke. <laughs> right. So you're recommending two to three times, I think, the standard protein consumption recommendations. Yeah. So the, the RDA, the recommended dietary allowance for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. Uh, so if you do the math on that, so someone who weighs 80 kilograms, they'd be, you know, recommending 65 grams of protein. So that's, you know, woefully ineffective, right? That's enough to not waste away um, if you were, you know, starving on a, on a ship wreck. But the reality of it is, if we're talking about putting on muscle mass and maintaining muscle mass, especially as we age, 
And as you age, you encounter something called anabolic resistance, where as the name suggests, just as we have insulin resistance, where the muscles are less sensitive to the effects of insulin, the muscles also become less sensitive to the available amino acids to undergo what's called muscle protein synthesis, which is the process of assimilating and incorporating those amino acids into growth. So if you look at the data, it's clear you need probably closer to 1.6 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So that 80 kilo person who weighs about 175 pounds, if you convert it, is going to need closer to 160 grams of protein. So I just basically say whatever system you're in, you know, it's either about one gram per pound of body weight or about two uh, grams per kilo of body weight. And that's, that's going to get you in the right zone. And then it's not just that in total amount, it's that those have to be spread out reasonably. So you can't have too much and you can't have too little protein in one sitting or you reduce the effectiveness of it. So if you're consuming probably less than 10 to 15 grams of protein in a sitting, you're not getting any of the anabolic benefits of that protein. That protein is first, the, the liver always takes first dibs on the protein and will undergo gluconeogenesis. So it's going to turn that first spigot of protein into glucose. And so you have to be kind of above and beyond that. So if you just, you know, ate 10 grams hmm, 16 times a day, you'd, you wouldn't get the anabolic benefits. You'd get some, but you wouldn't get much. Yeah. Similarly, if you ate it all in one sitting, the data would suggest that you can really only use about 40 or 50 grams in one sitting. So you have to kind of spread that out. Interesting. And this is part of the challenge with, with intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, which is you say, for me at 185 pounds to get to your, you know, the, the, the recommended protein levels, I, I'd need to have four servings of 45 grams, you know, yeah, of 45 grams, which is six ounces of, of, of chicken, fish, or meat. That's, that's a lot to consume. And if you look at what that looks like, I, I just looked it up because I was so astonished by these numbers. A cup of hummus contains about 19 grams of protein, a cup of almonds, about 28 grams of protein, which by the way, is very expensive almonds. And, and, you know, and so we're talking about like nine cups of hummus. <laughs> yeah. Get, so you, you want to be mindful of, especially if you're trying to cut calories while you're doing this, like you have to look at basically pure sources of protein. Like I would never use hummus as a protein source because it's just coming right. with way too many other calories. Like when I'm consuming yeah. protein, I'm, I want to consume the leanest source of protein I can get. So for me, it's mostly venison, elk, bison, salmon. I mean, that's where I'm getting the bulk of my protein. So, so, you know, I'll easily have like, when we're done this podcast, I'm going to go and have 50 grams of protein in the form of venison and the total calories will be 250. And, and so you would say that it's possible to get there uh, as a vegetarian or a vegan. It's just difficult. That's right. Yeah. It's just harder because of protein quality. Um, so protein density and protein quality are lower without animal products. And this, these protein levels are critical to building the muscle, which we've, we, and we've described how critical that is to long-term health. Yep. I have had a real interest in, in longevity research. I read Lifespan by David Sinclair. What do you think about his information theory of aging? And I, I know you're not a big fan of the NAD booster, NRNMN supplements, um, what's your view of, of the probability that we will meaningfully extend the human lifespan in the next several decades? 
Well, I guess it depends what we define as meaningful, but if we're talking about basically undoing aging, I'm not particularly optimistic that that's something that's going to happen in our lifetime. And what do you think of this sort of notion that aging results from an accumulation of errors in our genetic code, this, this information theory of aging, this notion that when our cells reproduce, the error rate and, and our, our ability to correct errors in cellular reproduction, as I understand it, erode as we get older. Does that uh, make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. It's, 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 a, it's a well understood hallmark of aging. So there are nine hallmarks of aging um, that are well described. And clearly a, a subset of these involve replication errors and accumulation of mutations. Another one of them involves epigenetic modification to, to the yeah. genes, even absent mutations. And that just is what happens when you get little, what are called methyl groups. So little carbons with the three hydrogens on them stuck onto the DNA itself. And that impacts the expression of those genes. So you have both accumulation of mutations, and then you have um, epigenetic overwriting of the genes. And these are both clearly a factor in our aging. Uh, I don't think that's in dispute. I think where I probably differ in my level of optimism from maybe the most optimistic here is, I think that's a much harder problem to solve than maybe is advertised. So there's a very famous idea proposed by a scientist, um, Yamanaka, who I believe was awarded the Nobel Prize yeah. for this. So using these Yamanaka yeah. factors, there are four of these factors. And you can basically turn a cell back into its primordial stem cell by uh, adding in the four Yamanaka factors. The problem with this approach when applied to an organism as complicated as ourselves is one, it's not clear how you would apply the factors across the body, right? It's clearly not like an ointment you're going to rub on yourself. You somehow have to decide which cells, like, well, is it the heart? Do we want to somehow take a heart which is aging and has less ejection fraction, less contractile function than it had you know, when you were 20, and we want to take it and make it become younger again. So how would we even get the Yamanaka factors into the heart? Secondly, how do we know where to tell it to stop? Because I don't want to turn your cardiac myocyte into a stem cell, because, I mean, that's not going to work out too well. How do I even know it's going to differentiate back into the cardiac uh, myocyte that we want it to be. So, so I, I think that there are going to be some applications for this, this type of approach. You know, one obvious example might be with cartilage. Can we take a person whose cartilage is, you know, very much in the phenotype of an arthritic state? And can we using localized therapy, try to bring that back to something that is uh, a more youthful phenotype. Again, I'm still not convinced that a Yamanaka factor is the way to do this for reasons that are probably too complicated for for the podcast. But anyway, I could say more about this. But I look, I think this is a this is a very long and interesting topic. Yeah, but, but yeah, I think, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. And and in terms of the supplements that you yourself take, I know rapamycin is 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 one that you are taking. Are are, are there any other supplements that you're personally taking in this area of of life extension? Well, I mean, you know, RAP is actually a drug. It's not a supplement. So it's, um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's important to understand that this is a very off-label use of, of rapamycin yeah. and, and RAP immune. And this is not something that we use liberally. Uh, most of our patients are not taking rapamycin. I, I would argue that I'm, you know, I'm really taking a leap of faith in, in using rapamycin. I've 
been doing it for five years. But the unfortunate thing with rapamycin in this situation, which is taking it as a giroprotective agent. So giroprotective meaning you're taking this not to target a specific disease, but to target those hallmarks of aging that I referred to earlier. The real problem with rapamycin and many proposed giroprotective agents is you don't have any biomarkers for them. And you got to think like it's really complicated in biology to take drugs where you don't have biomarkers. You know, at least if you're taking something to lower your lipids, you have your lipids to look at. If you're taking something to lower your blood pressure, you can see your blood pressure. If you're taking something to improve your blood glucose, you can measure your blood glucose. When we give people rapamycin, or when I take it myself, I don't have a biomarker to point to. So that's the challenge with the hallmarks of aging is we don't have great biomarkers for them. And even things like methylation clocks at this point seem so noisy so uh, invalidated that they don't seem to offer any insight meaningfully in predicting what matters most, which mm -hmm. is remaining life. Now, I'm actually optimistic that that's going to change. So I do think that that is the next frontier is being able to use epigenetic markings as a way to come up with a better biomarker for these types of interventions. So that that is something that I think is going to happen mm -hmm. in our lifetime. And that's something I'm very excited about. Coming up, Peter explains why the single most important piece of this whole health puzzle is fine-tuning your emotional well-being. Stay with us. We'll be right back. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Let's turn to uh, the last chapter in your book about mental health. And as you point out, all this effort to extend our lives and, and, and extend our health span is not particularly worthwhile if we're not enjoying our lives, right? And you do something really bold and, and I would say generous in your final chapter of the book, which is you share some really significant challenges you faced uh, in your childhood and young adulthood and talk about how you adapted to those challenges and the consequences in your adult life. Feel free to share as as little of that journey as you'd like, or as much. But I, but I think it's a I think it's a really inspiring choice you made to get into your own your own journey with mental health, uh, and really really helpful for readers and listeners. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is uh, of, of all the things I write about in the book. This is clearly the area where I have the least professional um, expertise. Uh, I think in the rest of the book, I'm bringing the reader along the journey as the teacher. Um, and I think in the last chapter, I'm bringing the reader along as the student. You know, we didn't spend much time on this podcast talking about the distinction between lifespan and health span, but I think it's yeah. also intuitive to, to, the, to the listener what we mean by that. Lifespan is how long you live. And that's where we talk a lot about the horseman and the horseman being a threat to your lifespan. And of course, implicitly, we've touched on health span, which is the quality of your life. That's you know, so much about what no. we talk about in the marginal decade. And it's also inevitable that gravity is working against us in everything that we've just said, right? 
your risk of dying is increasing with every passing year, regardless of how much of this stuff you do. If you follow all of these steps, I think you'll live a longer life, but you know, maybe it's a decade longer. It's not like you're doubling your lifespan and it's certainly not that you're going to become immortal. The only thing that doesn't have to decline with age is your emotional health. Um, and I do distinguish this from mental health, right? I mean, this is, you know, mental health really is more about the pathology around, you know, depression, anxiety, mental health diseases like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, things like that, uh, personality disorders. But, but I think emotional health is a broader term that encompasses mental health, but basically speaks to pathology and not pathology. So everyone really should have a dashboard of their emotional health. And I think it is the single most important piece of this whole puzzle. And even though it only gets one out of 17 chapters in the book, it's a very important chapter because as you said, without this, nothing else matters. You see, there are people who are in a wheelchair whose mind is sharp as a tack and live a very meaningful life. They, they might not be able to physically do all the things they could do before they were in a wheelchair, but they can have a wonderfully rich, meaningful life. And there's conversely many people who have complete sound mind, complete sound body, and they are miserable as hell and their life sucks and their relationships suck. And I would argue I was one of those people. So in that sense, this is a chapter about how to address that crisis and why I think it's the best news of all, because as we're kind of all going through this journey, basically just dying, because that's what we're doing. Mm, I mean, we're all yeah. just dying. Yeah. This is the one thing where we can become better as we age. We can become better people as we move through life. And um, even as we're getting weaker and slower and dumber. How do you think about optimal contentment? Right, because when you look back at your own life, your success is inextricably entwined with your, you know, childhood and young adult experience, which drove you to prove yourself and and this kind of extrinsic motivation of of proving yourself to the world. Now, as we get older, we we hope to be more driven by intrinsic motivation and do things for ourselves and families and communities, opposed to to prove something. Right, but but clearly that driver was critical to getting you to where you are. How, how do you think about optimal contentment? Not sure. Um, I, I, again, I don't look at my past as necessarily a negative thing. It is what it is. I, yeah. I think the only regret I have is that I didn't figure out sooner a way to extract the positive things from my experiences from the negative ones. Right. So there are many adaptations that come from negative experiences. I had a lot of really positive adaptations. You point them out, but I had a lot of negative ones too. And I'm only in the last, you know, five or six years coming to the point where I'm now focusing on how to undo those negative ones and try to preserve some of the positive ones. I wish I could have done that. 20 years sooner. Uh, I wish I could have done that 30 years sooner. There are a lot of dead bodies in my wake and uh, I, wish, I, wish there were, I wish there were none. Well, it's an inspiring chapter and um, 
and I'm sure will will be one of the many parts of your book that that has a profound, large-scale positive impact. Peter, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, your workout routine, your your thriving practice, and your your book tour to be with us. I now have a lot of work to do. I've got some, I got to fill up my sandbags in my <laughs> rucking sack. I've got to hit, hit the trainer at the gym. And uh, I really appreciate uh, your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for making the time to read the book. It was, uh, yeah, it's clear you've, you've spent a lot of time thinking about it and uh, I appreciate it. And that's our show. Peter Atiyah's new book is Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. Despite talking about it for more than two hours, I feel like we barely scratched the surface. Highly encourage you to pick up a copy. If you'd like to go deeper on the science of sleep, check out the interview I did with Dr. Russell Foster. That episode is called Sleep. And if you want to learn more about nutrition, we had a great conversation a few months ago with Dr. Tim Spector. He has a slightly different view on nutrition than Peter does, one that's focused on developing your microbiome. He makes a highly compelling argument that we should eat a wide variety of plants, ideally 25 or more different plants every week. It's easier than you think. The episode is called Diet, and you can find a link in the show notes. One more recommendation. Earlier this year, we released our first ever original audiobook. It's called Immortality, A User's Guide. Acclaimed science writer Stephen Johnson explores the revolutionary science of life extension, something Peter and I touched on briefly in this conversation. Download it now at nextbigideaclub.supportingcast.fm. As always, we'd be thrilled if you'd leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Here is a review we got this week from someone named Glacier1975. They wrote, rarely not worth your time. I don't listen to every single one of anything, but I listen to most of these. That's so nice of you to say, thank you. Leave us a review and we may read it on the show. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound design by Mike Toda. Our show is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.